Good afternoon, I'm Andrew Toth with Investing News Network here at the Cambridge House Show with Danielle Park, author of the Juggling Dynamite blog. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Andrew. So are we at a low point in the business cycle and when will this cycle trend up? Um, usually when people ask that at this show, they mean in terms of the resource sector and whether the, the market cycle has reached a bottom. Right. Um, in terms of the business cycle, that is something different. Uh, I think that the business cycle is presently in a contracting mode globally. So that means that there is probably further slowing to go. We're sort of in the early contraction phase. Um, in which case, you know, typically the stock market leads that to the downside. Um, and certainly the resource sector has been leading to the downside as well as commodity prices over the last couple of years. So in terms of a bottom of the market cycle for the resource sector, I think we're probably close. Um, in terms of the business cycle, I think we still are in the early contracting phase. So we still have some probably more uh, slowing trends to work through yet. Okay. And global equities are down, but the S&P is up, as you pointed out. So you say this decoupling phenomenon is bound to, to end. Why is that? Well, because you know we're in a very global economy. There's a great level of connectivity between um, the world economies and between world markets. And the one thing they've all had in common has been this infusion of QE, or quantitative easing, from central banks all over the world since really 2010. And each time we've seen, uh, the first time they introduced a QE out of the US in 2010, you saw a broad rally in risk markets uh, into a peak in 2011, where there was sort of an, uh, a belief that they were going to be able to stimulate inflation and demand in the world. Then there was a point where the markets sold off again. Uh, reality hit, oh, they can't fix an over-levered economy just by throwing more cash into the banking system and you saw world markets sell off again. Each time they've rolled out the next level of quantitative easing, you've seen a shorter duration to that rally. And in the last round since the fall of 2012, when they promised basically QE to eternity, you saw um, the S&P rally significantly, but nothing else really confirmed. So nothing really participated with that. You saw bond yields weaken which means deflation, not inflation. You saw commodities sell off. You saw gold uh, give back a lot of the gains that it's made in the last couple of years. So all of those things tell me that the world is still coupled. And you know, it's like, which one of these things does not belong? Well, the answer at the moment would be dividend paying stocks and the S&P and the Dow are sort of the broad benchmarks are still very overvalued. Back at the peak they saw even in 2007, when, let's not forget, global growth was north of 5%, Andrew, at that point. Today, global growth is maybe 3 You know, the U.S. is maybe 2 Canada is less than that, probably trending around one6 So that's the reality of demand in the world. And you see that nominal GDP in the U.S. has contracted below 4% growth, which has always indicated a recession in the, in the past, in history, whenever that's happened. So I think that the, the reality is revenues are coming in, sales are declining, there's a general deflationary tone again, and as much as they'd like to re-stimulate things with QE, it's really not working. And so I think that the price risk right now is in things like the S&P, great price risk there, as well as 
in income paying instruments like dividend paying stocks where the public has really gone as you know a desperate yield, zeal for yield trying to find somewhere to be that pays them something and, just, and sadly you know they're there collecting minuscule income with great price risk again right now okay. so that usually always corrects itself and you get a, a sense of recoupling of those those economic trends, the leading markets in the world with the developed markets. So with investors that do have money parked in the S&P, uh, what would be the catalyst that would move the, the index lower? Do you, think? you know, it's never uh, one thing per se. People will say, well, what would ever be the, you know, they're never going to stop QE. Well, fine, they don't have to stop QE. I don't think it's an infinite proposal, but even if they don't stop QE, the, the fact is, QE eternity, as they've dubbed it, has not turned the economy around, has not uh, stopped the deflationary trend of all the deleveraging that's going on in the world. So I think it could be, you know, something just as simple as every buyer who's going to buy has bought. You know, you look at, for example, sentiment indicators right now, the bull share of, of investment intelligence, you know, the advisor community is the most bullish it's been in years. I think the all-time most bullish condition they ever achieved was 60% bulls in 2007, and today they're something like 56% bulls. So just something as simple as that has always had a point where all those who have bought have bought, uh, all those who are speculating on leverage are already fully levered, fully in, and all of a sudden, one blinks. Now, it could be a catalyst like the Japanese bond market selling off and yields jumping 40% in the last three weeks could send a reverberation of, you know, uh, of selling in different asset pools. Because the world is so correlated and so levered, it really can set off selling from unpredictable places sometimes. So I think that you might see uh, any one of those things, never mind a geopolitical development or any of that, just a, a point where exhaustion takes hold, no one else is going to buy, and the levered sellers begin. And once the levered sellers begin, you get the cascading impact across all different risk markets. And that's where people that think they're in there with long-term investors realize, ah, I'm in a room that's at least half speculators. Right. Okay. Uh, you say commodities, in your last presentation you said commodities are moving in the right direction, um, but you're also saying that the commodity cycle isn't dead. So what are your reasons for optimism on commodities right now? So what I'm saying is that what you want is some reality and transparency in price. We want price discovery in the world. What we had in the credit bubble was uh, opaque. It wasn't price discovery. What we've had with the QEs pumping into uh, stock markets and a bunch of leverage and algo trading is you've got price that's disconnected from reality. So the positive thing we want to see is a reconnection between asset markets and demand in the world economy. And when we get that, we can actually make an investment decision based on what the prospects are for growth from that point. So when I say that commodities have moved in the right direction, they were in a bubble in 2008, that burst, they came down 70%, that was positive. I was actually positive on the commodity sector for a brief time in 2009. But what happened was that the stimulus intervention and the failure of Obama and company and various other people around the world to do anything different than, you know, come in and clean up the system. The political will wasn't there. Nothing really changed. All the levered players that had created the credit bubble really went back fully at it. And we had this re quick reacceleration in risk markets. So commodities then were disconnected from the reality of the world. Up to 2011, you saw, you know, the consumers everywhere struggling, deleveraging, focus on paying down debt. 
not a lot of extra cash flow, not a good jobs market, and yet you had this levitation in asset prices. So every time one of those markets capitulates and begins to sell off and says, okay, I give, I realize we're not in an inflationary high growth environment, you start to get some price discovery. So that's why it's good that many of those constituents have been selling off and coming back down. The, the fact is, and this is why I try and caution people though, is that the V-shaped recovery we saw in the commodity space off the 09 bottom was so dramatic and fast, it's actually an anomaly. The most normal condition for a business cycle recovery is that those cyclicals form a base from the bottom for a period of time. It's not a V back up to all-time highs. It's sort of a a like a, a sideways turn for a while as the weak players get filtered out of the system, the strong players consolidate, pick up assets, and then capital gains begin probably you know a year or two from there, but not an immediate uh, compensation sort of thing. And the fact that you got a world starved for income right now is also a headwind for the commodity sector because let's face it, people don't buy you know the, the resource sector for income, they tend to buy it for capital appreciation. So there has to be a bit of patience, you know, and also if the leverage in the world has to sell off in the broad market still, as I say it does, that could still cause some selling pressure in the resource sector. But the good news is, you know, it's, it's a question of how far have you got to fall. When you're back at the lows you were, you know, 13 years ago, you know that you have a reasonable cushion there versus markets like, you know, some of the developed markets and financial shares, which are at an all time high. So there's much further to fall there, and price is our greatest risk. Okay. Um, so you mentioned Gold Corp's website. There's a quote on there that said central banks bought 530 tons of 534 tons of gold last year, which is the, the most since 1964, and that would be a bullish signal for gold. Why are you saying that? No, I didn't say it was a bullish signal. They did. Okay. They're basically saying, you know, look at this trend. Central banks are buying up gold left, right, and center, and isn't that a bullish indicator? And I was just simply questioning it because, you know, I uh, am a, just a humble student of history. I've read several books on the history of gold. Uh, the Power of Gold by Peter Bernstein is one that comes to mind. And also, as I wrote in my book, Juggling Dynamite, uh, governments and central banks have a have a habit of buying gold high and selling it low. Right. So uh, the fact that they're buying more after you know we've had a, a pretty extensive run up in the price of gold over the last 13 years. Yes, it's come back in the last couple, and maybe they see that as a you know an entry point. You know, uh, but I'm not sure it's a bullish indicator. That's all. I don't give such genius uh, to governments and central bankers. They tend to do things just like other humans, pretty much at the wrong time. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, where are you on, on QE right now? Will the Fed continue its bond buying program, do you think? I think that it uh, wants to. I think that the uh, central banks of the world are terrified of deflation. Uh, interestingly, I don't think individuals should be as terrified of deflation. I think deflation is actually a healthy correction for a period of overinflation. And when you look at the asset values in the world, you know, again, we were at the all-time highest valuations in history in 2000, and again in 2007, and again pretty much now. Uh, and housing prices in the rest of the world, you know, have come down considerably. Places like Australia and Canada are still very overvalued. 
The problem with high prices is you run out of people who can afford it. And I think that's where we are today. So you have an elite group of people who have benefited from the QE inflation trade. Certain assets have gone up dramatically in value. But if you want to find buyers and customers, you need people to have the ability to consume. And they haven't made wage gains. So I think that no matter what they do on the QE, they may feel they have to keep it up because they're terrified of deflation. They're winning, they're, sorry, they're losing that, um, that arm uh, wrestle and deflation is coming back because there's so many consumers pulling back and trying to rebuild and pay down debt. So it's kind of irrelevant. Uh, they may continue it. I think it's politically unpalatable now. It's getting to be very uncomfortable that the central bank keeps doing this. There's a growing sort of sense that, you know, it's not working. So why do they keep trying that? Uh, you look at Japan. I showed some charts of Japan. It's, it's not as if QE's never been tried. They've tried it there repeatedly over the last you know, 25 years. Uh, and their GDP continues to contract throughout. And you know, just recently, they had a huge gain in uh, their, their um, stock market on the idea that inflation, well, it was ridiculous. It was up 60% in a matter of a few months. And then now it's sort of hit that resistance and selling off again as we speak. So it may be that it was just, again, a bunch of speculators trading on leverage who said, you know, every time they roll out one of these QE programs, people believe it for a few weeks. So let's get in and ride that wave. But then they're the first ones to want out. And, uh, you know, the investing public has to be careful not to jump on the train and then real not, and thinking it's a sustainable trend when in fact it's probably just a quick trade. Okay. You said that as an investor, it's most important to have an entry and an exit point in these rough markets. Mm -hmm. Could you explain that a bit further? So it's very difficult for people because a secular bear environment, as I've talked ad nauseum, I mean, yeah, I've been talking about this for more than 10 years. A uh, secular bear environment, it, it's a sideways range bound price movement. So every expansion to a peak, a contraction to a bottom, expansion to a peak, contraction to a bottom. It's not the upward slope that people anticipate or, or think about when they think about why you'd buy stocks for the long run. You know, and so it may well be that stocks over 30, 40, 50 years will increase with the rate of inflation as earnings go up. But during secular bear periods, they don't do that, they do this. And so if you're gonna participate in that environment, you can't be buy and hold in my view uh, because very few people have the timeline necessary to absorb that kind of volatility. Secondly, they're not emotionally uh, comfortable with that kind of a wild ride and especially when the compensation is very small. So if you buy assets when they're overvalued in this kind of an environment, what happens is that your long-term returns from that point are minuscule, like two, three percent expectation and it's an incredibly wild ride to get there. So what I say is you really can miss an entire secular bear period if you, you know, don't have a mechanism for trying to capture some of the upside and then a strict discipline about when you sell. You can actually afford to sit out of a secular bear environment entirely and do better in very modest income bearing instruments, GIC deposits, that sort of thing, than trying to participate without a sell rule. So, you know, it's as I try and explain, you know, if you're going to make two or three percent, it's actually more valuable to do that in a very staid, slow, boring manner than it is to do it like this over time, because that is full of great personal risk, uh, and it, it 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 means that a lot of bad things can happen to you through the course of that cycle. So really, you don't want to be just riding it for no 
return premium. Um, and that's why secular bears are so challenging. So either you should step aside completely, or if you're going to participate in them, do it in a very, very controlled way that has a lot of rules about when you get on and off. So a good idea to implement some stops in your buying and selling. Yes, and this there's a lot of, uh, of sort of rhetoric that doesn't serve. The idea that one can be perpetually invested in equities and risk markets during this environment is completely wrong. Uh, at least if you want to be paid for the risk you're exposing yourself to. Uh, you know, uh, the idea that there's a bull market somewhere all the time and all you do is rotate from one risky asset class to the next is not very productive either in this type of an environment because the correlations in the world are so high. You may have a lag, you know, where one market is uh, continues higher like the S&P for a period of months while everything else begins to turn down. But that gap is typically not long for the world. And it's not that there's a decoupling, it's that there's a lag and then it recouples. So you have to be very mindful of that reality if you're gonna try and participate in these things. Okay, some good advice for investors. So thanks for that. I'm Andrew Top for Investing News Network. I've been speaking with Danielle Park. Thanks for joining me.